We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, some years ago, Gail had asked me before Christmas time and my birthday, which is just a week later, if there was anything special that I would like to have. And I said, well, there is something. I was reading just recently about a wonderful new Bible dictionary that's come out from Harper's. It's supposed to be just the very latest and best dictionary of the Bible. She said, fine. And that's what she got me for Christmas and birthday. It's a big, fat book, almost like an unabridged dictionary. It has 1,256 pages, and there is not a single entry called The Rapture. I also have a five-volume dictionary. This one is called The Interpreter's Dictionary, and it's five volumes long. Each one of the volumes is more than 800 pages. I added them up this week. 4,274 pages And not a single entry says the rapture. Not a single one. Last August, I knew I was going to be preaching on this text today. And that morning at breakfast, I saw a letter to the editor. Paul Ashby had written, The so-called rapture theory was a hoax invented by British evangelist John Nelson Darby about 150 years ago. For 1950 years, 1850 years, there was no mention of rapture anywhere in Christian literature. The word rapture never appears in the teachings of Jesus, nor in a single verse of the entire Bible. It's based on an imaginative reading of 1 Thessalonians 4:17. If the rapture was so clear in the Bible, how did St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Teresa of Avila, John Wesley, Friedrich Schleiermacher, all miss it. If this text isn't about something called the rapture, what is it? What are these words of Paul trying to say to you and me that mean something to us because he's addressing an all-important subject? Brothers and sisters, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died. Our scholars believe that Paul had first arrived in Thessalonica probably in the year 49, that he had preached to them and then moved on, that it was about a year later, probably in the year 50, that he wrote this letter back to the church at Thessalonica. Now, it's almost for sure that Paul had told them about a Greek word called perusia, Perusia, the coming again of the Lord, when the Lord comes again. They were anticipating that, looking forward to it. Paul had made it sound like such a wonderful thing, but a whole year had passed, and some within their community had died. What about them? 
What about those who didn't make it until Jesus came back? What happens to them? And that's what Paul's trying to address. I've underlined four things here. First of all, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died so that you may not grieve like those who have no hope. The way we grieve is so important. Paul is not saying that we ought not grieve. No. The Bible doesn't say that we ought not grieve. The Bible understands, as God knows, when we lose someone to death whom we love, it really hurts. It really hurts. Not saying don't grieve. Saying don't grieve like those grieve who have no hope. I remember the very first funeral I ever did as a minister. I'd only been to two funerals in my whole life. I'd been to one grandfather's funeral when I was eight and a grandmother's funeral when I was a senior in high school. On both occasions, I was more concerned about what was happening to my mother. She had lost her father and she had lost her mother and the loss of her parents had hurt her deeply. And so I was concerned about her and how she was doing. I didn't really notice whether the minister walked in front of the casket or behind the casket. Where did the minister stand out at the graveside? Exactly what did he say at that funeral? And suddenly at 18 years of age, two months out of high school, I was pastoring two little churches and Ms. Emma Roselle died. I still remember her name after all those years. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Uh, I drove to the funeral home where I was told that she had been taken. And as I walked in, not sure what I was supposed to do next, I heard a familiar voice, a Methodist preacher from Marshall, Texas, where this funeral home was. I walked into the room where he was. I waved to him and he came into the hallway to speak to me. And he said, I understand you're the new pastor at Mount Zion Circuit. I said, I am. And one of my ladies has died and I don't know what to do. He said, come with me. And he took me in a little side room there and he went through what I was supposed to do step by step by step. And then the day of the funeral came. I walked across that little oil road from the very small, meager little parsonage to this little wood frame church. And as I got almost to the front door, the funeral director walked out, first shook my hand, and then reached into his pocket, held out his hand, and when I held mine under it, he dropped into my hand three little ammonia vials. I knew what they were because I'd seen them broken under guys' noses in football games when you were a little foggy after a really hard hit. I knew what they were, but I asked him, what are these for? And he said, these are for you to help me when the people start fainting. I said, nobody's going to faint. He said, oh, yes, they are. You just hold on to them. And so we got through the funeral, and then the funeral director opened up the casket, and people started filing past, and as it got closer and closer members of the family, people started going, oh, and just falling into the floor. And he was popping these ammonia vials under their noses, and so I started popping ammonia vials under their noses. But when that long day finally ended, I knew that what we had done there was not a good Christian witness. And so when I got to college that Monday morning, I asked one of my professors, what can I do 
about having a more faithful witness to how Christian people ought to grieve. And he sat down with me and told me, you can't wait till somebody dies. It's too late to talk about some of these important things. You need to devote Sunday nights, maybe a month of them, maybe two months of them, talking about how Christian people grieve. And if you are convincing enough, the next time somebody dies, maybe your little church will do it entirely differently. And I started to work with them. I stayed six years as their pastor. And by the time I left there, I believe we were giving a far more faithful witness about how Christian people grieve. When I came to this church, I said to all of our clergy here, now we will not open caskets at the church. If people want to open caskets, we will do that at the funeral home. We can meet them there. We can have a prayer with them there. But there has to come a time when the lid is closed the last time, and that's before we get to the church. I'd been here only a few months when Art McGrew was dealing with one of the families at a funeral home one night, and the husband of the deceased said, well, by golly, we are going to open the casket. And Art said, Dr. Biggs says we're not. And he said, well, we are. And so Art called me, and I talked to this man. And he said, well, I want the number of your bishop. I'm calling your bishop right now. I said, well, I can save you a little money if you want me to. First of all, my bishop is not going to overrule me in my, in my own parish. And second of all, I know this bishop really well. He and I served in the same city down in Beaumont, Texas. And I know that not only did he not allow caskets to be opened in the church, he insisted that every casket be covered by a beautiful pall so that people didn't even see that this casket cost $800 or it cost 10000 It was covered by a beautiful pall with a cross symbolizing that this person was a follower of Christ. And we didn't open the casket the next day. How do Christian people grieve? I had another tough encounter just a few months ago. I met with a family at a nearby funeral home. And when we were talking about music, the widow said, and we're going to do, I did it my way. And I said, not at Boston Avenue. We don't do that at Boston Avenue. Well, we are. And I said, no, we aren't. And the funeral director stood there and wrung his hands, and I said, no, we aren't. Let me help you. And I tried to be really patient. I said, we'll sing anything in a Methodist hymn book or anything that's considered classical music. We're not going to sing Frank Sinatra. We're not going to sing Elvis Presley. We're not going to sing Paul Anka. Not at Boston Avenue. Let me help you. There was no helping She said, we're singing it. I said, not at Boston Avenue. And so she called another Methodist church here in the city and they said, come on over. You can sing whatever you want to. And they went to another Methodist church. I believe we have a responsibility to help our people know how Christians ought to grieve. And that doesn't mean that Dr. Tankersley or any of our other ministers or I are trying to say that everybody grieves the same. It's not that. But when we come to worship together, There are proper ways and improper ways. And Paul was trying to help them grieve, not like those who have no hope. Number two, second thing Paul said, 
is that the Lord himself shall come. Now, Paul's writing long before the four Gospels got written. The Gospel of John has not been written where Jesus said, I will go to my Father and prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. But already Paul envisioned this coming again of the Lord with a shout of command. This is like a military officer in Greek with the call of an archangel with the trumpet of Almighty God. I'm really looking forward to today at six o'clock. I love to hear orchestras play. I love to hear symphonies play. And we're going to have 40 instrumentalists. Every year, of course, Gail and I come to the presentation of Handel's Messiah here. Uh, I've been hearing Handel's Messiah since I was a little boy, as most of you have been. And so when Gail and I come to hear Messiah, we don't always sit in the very best seat to get all the sounds equally. No, Gail was an old percussionist years ago, and she really loves the timpani. And even though the one who plays timpani just gets to do that in two numbers most of the time, Gail sort of likes to sit close to the timpani. And, and it's interesting if you just sit there and watch. Usually it's a woman who's been playing timpani here uh, from the symphony. And uh, how she tunes it. When she's not playing, everything else is going on. People are singing in the inst- other instruments. She has her ear right down and she's mm, just barely touching this thing. And several times during the hours, she, mm, be sure that timpani is t- tuned just right so that when her big moments come, they're exactly right. Because I've heard this so many times, sometimes I concentrate on one instrument. That's an interesting way to do it. Concentrate on one instrument. I remember when Kathy Venable played the harpsichord. And there are far bigger sounds coming out of the orchestra than the harpsichord. But that night I decided I'm going to listen to every note that Kathy plays. And I was sitting right down close and I could hear the harpsichord. And I was really sort of amazed at how many important parts the harpsichord had if you listen for it. I love to hear Rod Ackman play the bassoon, and the bassoon is often used in comedic parts when you go to the theater, uh, but it has some very important parts in the Messiah. And one year I sat there and I concentrated. Every time uh, I would see this bassoon come up to the mouth, I would listen very carefully to hear the notes the bassoonist was playing. Well, last year, Richard Sutliff sang a number that the Penseras don't always include in the Christmas portion. You know that the Messiah is much longer than our roughly an hour of performance uh, every Christmas Eve, uh, the Sunday before Christmas. But last year we had one of the great numbers that appears later, past the Christmas portion, if you would, when it comes to the resurrection of our Lord. And when Richard Sutliff stood up to sing, of course, you know what a magnificent, powerful voice he has. And he began to sing this number coming from 1 Thessalonians. And the Lord shall come with a shout of command. The archangel shall call and the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. We were sitting right down here, Gail and I, because she wanted to hear the timpani, really hear it. But you know who was right near the timpanist? The trumpeter. The trumpeter was sitting just two seats in front of the one who was going to play timpani. And when we came to that particular number, he lifted out a little trumpet that's just this long. I asked him later, what do you call that little trumpet? And he said it's called a piccolo trumpet. 
a piccolo trumpet, just this long. Here was Richard singing these big, wonderful bass notes, you know. And the Lord shall come. And with a shout of command, and the call of the archangel, and the trumpet of the Lord. And this little little piccolo trumpet was just screaming these wonderful, powerful notes. I tell you, if you didn't feel something happening to you at that moment, you were not into what was being said and the sounds you were hearing. It was magnificent. And that's all Paul is trying to say, that you need the shout from the Lord, the call from the archangel and the trumpet of God to wake the dead, but they shall be wakened. Number three, Paul then uses a word, apentesis, apentesis. What happens next is the apentesis. Now, this is a common word back in that first century, and it described some ruler, uh, the Caesar, some great army commander coming. One does not merely come to the street or walk outside one's door. One goes out to meet someone important. I've told you over the years, there were lots of differences between my dad's family and my mother's family. My dad's family were pretty non-expressive about what they were feeling. Um, When they got together, they argued about politics and stuff. You know, they would have been having a field day before the elections last week or after the elections, and they would get all riled up with each other and fussing and, well, who did you vote for? Why did you vote for her, him, whatever. My mother's people were poorer people. But there was a genuine affection for them, among them. Um, I remember so well something that stands out in my mind. One of my favorite cousins in my dad's family, named Jerry, had ended up in the army right after we had finally ceased all that fighting in Korea. President Eisenhower had finally gotten that one stopped. But we still had occupation forces, as we still do in South Korea. And my cousin Jerry was part of the United States Army in those occupation forces. Uh, Jerry was in Korea for a little more than a year, and finally we'd heard he was coming home. He was going to fly into Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, His father would pick him up there, and he could be at my grandmother's house by 2.30 or so. On a Sunday, all of us went to church, and then we all went over to my grandmother's, and we all ate more than we should have. And then the men did what they did every time they got together. They played dominoes and fussed about politics. And the children were to play out in the yard and not make much noise, uh, you know, not, not be heard nor seen. And suddenly, my uncle pulled up in the front yard with my cousin, who had been in Korea for more than a year. And I ran up and hugged him, and he hugged me, and his father, and he walked into the house. And my dad and these brothers-in-law of his just kept shuffling the dominoes. And one said, Hey, Jerry, have you been? Glad you're home. And kept playing dominoes. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It's not the way my mother's family does things. In just ten days, we hope to go down to Texas for Thanksgiving. Uh, There are six, six grandsons of my mother. Uh, My brother has two sons, my sister two sons. Of course, we have the two sons. And these sons, grandsons to my mother, arrive at different times. 
My sister and her husband have the biggest house of the Biggs is down in, in Carthage now. They live three miles outside of town and a little bit off of famed Highway 59. And so when a car turns up this drive, you, you can see the headlights pretty well. These six grandsons arrive at different times with their spouses and little children. Not one arrives that everybody in the house does not go out to meet them. We can be sitting in there visiting with each other as the night goes on, and when we see headlights, somebody say, Brian, coming from San Antonio, maybe Manuel, coming from San Antonio, maybe Miguel, coming from Houston, maybe Trey, maybe Jason, coming from Tulsa. This is the one we've been looking for. Everybody in the house goes out. By the time they're getting out of the car, there are 25 people hugging because everyone is so important. Everyone is so important. You don't shuffle the dominoes. You go out to meet them. And that's what apentesis is about. Going out to meet. And so when the Lord comes and with the shout of command and the archangel calls and the trumpet blows and the dead are raised, they all go out to meet the Lord. And Paul's very clear that those who are still living have no advantage over those who've already died. Both those who've died and those still living go out to meet the Lord. Apentesis. We all go out to meet the Lord. Now, number four. As the centuries have gone on and Jesus has not come back the way we were expecting him, we've come to believe that When each one dies, the Lord comes. When each one dies, for that one, there is a shout of command, an archangel's call, the blowing of the trumpet, and that person goes out to meet the Lord. And the Lord takes him or her home, just as he promised. And there's room enough for everyone to come home. In the Lord. And so Paul says, We shall be with the Lord forever. Dr. Beverly Gavinta in her commentary says, To be with the Lord means you're safe. You're safe. Nothing can harm, nothing can hurt ever again. You're safe with the Lord forever. Elizabeth Sherrill said that she and her husband were out one night, and when they got home, there was a message on their phone. It was from their son. He was having a really bad day. He had just been told he would have emergency surgery first thing the next morning. He didn't go into great detail about what that was. And here they were, hundreds of miles away, started trying to reach him, wasn't answering his phone, wasn't answering a cell phone, Hospital said they weren't interrupting him in the middle of the night. And the next morning, when they got up, it was all they could think about, of course. They were praying and praying and worrying, anxious. Elizabeth said she was, you know, pacing, pacing around when suddenly their phone rang. She rushed to the phone. It wasn't their son nor anybody with him at the hospital. It was a friend of theirs named Dan, a psychologist. She said, Dan is our friend. A very special friend, but one that we don't see so very often, do not talk too often. We had not seen nor talked to him probably in three or four months. 
And this morning he chose to call and say hello. And I started pouring out that we had this call the night before. Our son, hundreds of miles away, was having emergency operation. And we didn't know much of the details or what we could possibly do, how long it would take us to get there. And he said, Elizabeth. I said, yes. He said, take a deep breath. How close are you right now to a wall in your house? And she said, three, four feet. He said, get a little bit closer, but not too close. I want you to lean on the wall. Lean on the wall. Stand far enough from it that if you were to suddenly lower your hand, you would fall against it. Okay? Lean against the wall. Are you doing that? She said, I'm doing that. He said, relax. Okay? Just relax and lean on the wall. Do you feel how strong it feels? Yes, she said. As I tried more and more to relax, I felt suddenly at ease, at peace. And then he said, lean on the Lord. It's the real difference between believing and actually trusting. Trust in the Lord about all that is and all that is yet to come. Isn't this a powerful, powerful rendering? And we shall be forever with the Lord.